Let me start this morning by asking you a question. How many of you are afraid of the dark? How many of you have ever been afraid of the dark? Yeah, most children are afraid of the dark. And it carries over into adulthood for a sizable number of people. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine if you had to walk down a long, dark hallway, enter into a pitch black room, the end of the hall. The only light that you had available to you was a a hand-held pan with some glowing coals in it. Imagine further that when you entered into this room with this pan of glowing coals, you would take a fistful of incense and sprinkle them on top. And if if a cloud of smoke would come up from that and, and fill the entire room, you would live. And if it didn't, fire would flash out of the darkness and consume you. Imagine further that you had to do this once a year for every day or every year of your adult life. That it was mandatory. Because in this experience, this ritual, you were representing your people in their worship before God. Such was the life of the high priest of Israel. The worship of God under the Mosaic covenant was very, very different than what you and I understand. Very, very different from what you and I have ever experienced. We could characterize the the worship of ancient Israel with a series of words. Fearful. Fearful, bloody, bloody, shadows, rituals, distance, intermediaries. Limited access. Recurring guilt. These are the characteristics of the worship of God 
under the Mosaic Covenant. But we don't live under that covenant anymore. In fact, we have never lived under that covenant. Something has changed. Something dramatic has happened. So that we, the people of God, now gather to worship much, much differently than those ancients who have gone before us. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. The 10th chapter of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the writer, and we don't know who the writer is, People have different thoughts on that matter. But under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the author of Hebrews contrasts the former way of relating to God with a, with a new and better way through the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. In the first Ten chapters or so of the book, first nine and a half chapters of the book, the author develops the reality that something huge has changed. That that the people of God have gone, as it were, through a turnstile that turns in only one direction. They have passed through and can never return. There is no going back. The author develops the reality that the Son of God, Jesus, is greater than the angels. He goes on to develop the superiority of Jesus to Moses, the great deliverer. Of Israel. The superiority of Jesus to Joshua. The superiority of Jesus to Aaron, the great high priest. He talks about a better covenant, a better tabernacle, a better sacrifice. And he exhorts his his readers to flee to this better way, this better one. In spite of of the pain, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the being ostracized from their nation... Or the writer is is writing to the Jewish people and says, go out to this one. In fact, chapter 13 and verse 13, he says, so let us go out to him outside the camp 
bearing his reproach. In chapter 6, in verses 1 through 8, he speaks of the, of the horror of those who begin to go out to Christ and lose their nerve and turn and try to come back. And he says there is no hope for them. The fearsome warning passage of Hebrews 6, which has unnerved so many people through the centuries. Go out to Jesus and never, ever look back. That's the message. That's the message. But we're here in chapter 10. This morning, I want to look with you, and it will be brief, but I want to look with you in preparation for our time here around the table at at verses 22 to 25. 22 to 25 of Hebrews chapter 10. And there in verses 22 to 25, there are three simple exhortations. Three simple exhortations. Exhortations on how to live. And these exhortations are are based upon two new realities that have been brought about by Christ, and, and those realities are spoken of in abbreviated form in verses 19 through 21. So let me read it for you. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, structurally, just as we look at these verses, notice in verse 19 the word since, and again in verse 21 the word since. Those are the two realities. The two realities. Therefore, he begins, verse 19, therefore, since this is true and since that is true, He gives us three exhortations. The first one in verse 22, right? Let us draw near. The second one in verse 23, let us hold fast. And the third one in verse 24, let us consider. So those are our three simple exhortations. Now let's just for a moment develop 
the, the two realities, and that'll bridge us into the exhortations, okay? So that first reality in verses 19 and 20 is, is simply this. Christ has opened the Holy of Holies to us. That's the first statement of reality. And, and he has laid this out and developed this earlier in the book. So he's just sort of summarizing that. Christ has, has opened the Holy of Holies to us. Now, the temple, which was still standing at the time this book was written, although it was soon to be destroyed, the temple was divided into the, to the court of the priests, and then beyond that, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt under the wings of the cherubim. It was there that the high priest would enter once a year with the sacrifice on behalf of the people. The separation, there was a, a, a separation between the, the court of the priests and the Holy of Holies, and it was separated by a veil. It's actually separated by two veils. They were, the writers, the ancient writer Josephus tells us, they were about a handbreadth thick, width across the palm of a man's hand. These two massive curtains overlapped each other. And there's about 18 inches that separated them in the overlap. That was the long, dark hallway that entered into or led into the pitch black room of the Holy of Holies in which there were no windows. The only light was that of the censer with the glowing coals that the high priest would bring in with him. The priest, the high priest, would walk between the curtain, between the veil, and would enter into that room and offer the incense. And then the blood of the sacrifice would be applied to the lid of the, tab, of, of the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea would be that, that God would symbolically look down upon the law of Moses the, on the stone tablets that resided in the Ark of the Covenant, and there he would see the law of God, and he would know the, the failure of the people of God to obey that law, and the blood of the sacrifice would temporarily cover over their transgressions for another year. But when Jesus died on that cross, Matthew tells us in chapter 27 and verse 51 that something amazing happened. The veil of the temple, we are told, was was rent asunder. It was torn in two, and it was torn from top to bottom. Matthew's very specific about that. It was torn from top to bottom. In other words, the, the, the barrier of separation that, that created the darkness and the fear was torn open, revealing the Holy of Holies, the very throne room 
of the God of the universe. It was the death of Christ that provided that access into the presence of Almighty God. And the veil was torn to symbolize, to make plain to all who have eyes of faith that something incredible has happened, that something has changed, and that the people of God may now proceed into a place that once only one man could go, and him but once a year. The second reality down in verse 21 is that Christ doesn't leave us to enter that place alone. He goes with us, and he continually represents us before the Father. Verse 21, he says, Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Great priest. That's another way of saying high priest. The great priest of Israel, the high priest of Israel, Aaron and his sons, represented the nation before God once a year on Yom Kippur. That would be the day they would enter into the forbidden place. But our great high priest, our new high priest, our high priest who is not from the order of Aaron, but indeed after the order of Melchizedek, the ancient priest of Salem, that is Jerusalem, who lives forever and is perfectly righteous, goes with us into that room. We have a great high priest over the house of God. The writer of Hebrews is very, very clear to make sure we don't miss that reality. Chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, that he, he lives forever to intercede for his people. Chapter 9, verses 11 to 13, he speaks of the same thing. In fact, in this same chapter here, verse 11, it says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He is there permanently in the presence of God, our great high priest to make intercession for us. See, beloved, because although it says here that in uh, verse 19, we have confidence, notice that, it's an inclusive statement, we have confidence to enter in, we should never misunderstand or underestimate the reality of what this means. We are entering into the presence of God. And we still need a representative before him. We cannot enter in on our own righteousness, for we have none. We must have the intermediary still. We, we must have the priest 
still. I mean, think about it. Are we really going to just march into the very throne room of God and and sit down and say, hey, let's talk. But sometimes our approach is so cavalier. Yes, we are intimate with the creator of the universe, but that intimacy is always in and through the great high priest, Jesus the Christ. So since... The writer will say, since he is both our sacrifice and our priest, we now have three exhortations, three three ways to respond, three ways we must respond to this incredible reality. We're to draw near, he says, verse 22, right? We're to draw near to him. It's another way of saying worship. We are exhorted to worship in light of this reality. Secondly, we're to hold fast our confession. Verse 23, we're being exhorted to witness. And finally, in verse 24, we're to to consider how to stimulate one another. That is, we're to work. So in light of the reality that the the way has been made open, that our entrance now into the holy place is, is open and secure, and the high priest Jesus is with us always in the presence of the Father, therefore, three things, worship, witness, and work. Worship, witness, and work. First, that invitation to worship, right? Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're being exhorted here to to worship with a pure heart, a sincere heart, a true heart. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 there in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. That our worship is to to be a sincere, not a a half-hearted worship. A sincere worship. Not an alloyed worship. Now that's possible, he says, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our, our bodies are washed with pure water. So what in the world is he Talking about on all of that, well, there's a, a referent back to actually Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll go ahead and turn you there just to remind you. Ezekiel 36, spoken by God to and through the prophet Ezekiel, speaks of a coming day for the ancient nation of Israel who are captive now, at least a portion of them in Babylon, 20,000 of them, and they are waiting there. They don't know they're waiting there, except Ezekiel keeps telling them, and they don't believe him. But they are waiting there for the Babylonian siege and destruction of the ancient city of Jerusalem along with the temple because they have been disobedient to God. 
But in the darkness of the prophet, there are rays of light. And chapter 36 is one of those rays of light. And beginning there in verse 24, he speaks of a coming day. He speaks of a coming covenant, a new covenant. And there he says, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, has already been spoken or or cited repeatedly in the earlier part of this book of Hebrews, this coming new covenant, that that Jesus is the, the mediator of this new and better covenant. But Ezekiel 36 is also speaking about that same new covenant and using the language of of cleansing and sprinkling and washing. And and that's the point here in verse 22. We are to come with a full-hearted, sincere, pure faith of worship, not based on something that we work up ourselves, but in full reliance upon the reality spoken of there in Ezekiel 36, that the Spirit now resides within, that the heart of stone that is so hard to God has been removed by His Spirit, replaced with a heart that is soft and and subtle to God, and that the law of God, to use the language of Jeremiah 31, no longer resides outside us in a condemning way through the ten the Ten Commandments written on the tablets of stone, but it now is written on our hearts by the Spirit of God who, who gives us the desire and empowers us to be able to obey. See, something amazing has happened. There's been a complete and full transformation, and our worship is now, to use Jesus' words to the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4, No longer do we worship there or here. It's not about location, right? Our worship now is in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. So there is this invitation to worship. There is also the invitation to witness. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope. What hope? What is hope? Scripturally, hope generally has God as its focus. It is a hope in God. It's not a wishful thinking, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, and I get something for my birthday, you know. It's that settled assurance that God will do what he has said he has done. Most typically in the the Bible, the the hope that is spoken of is is the hope in life beyond the grave. 
It is, the, it is the hope that death has been conquered. And that victory has been shared with us. For example, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, Paul there says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. The hope of glory, that is the the hope, the settled reality, the firm conviction that someday we will be glorified. We will enjoy in the presence of God that which Christ himself enjoys even now. Christ in you, the hope of of hope of glory. Or Titus chapter 2 verse 13 where we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Jesus, we are are looking for the return of Christ, that blessed hope that ushers in the age to come. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The living hope. Beloved, the most fearful thing in life is death. It is the most fearful thing. It is mysterious. It is permanent. It is painful. And it is something that all of us would do virtually anything to avoid. It is life's biggest unknown. But for the child of God, the sting of death has been removed. There is much we do not know for sure, but we we do know that death is not final. It is not permanent, that the grave doesn't bring it all to an end, that our life does not end there. We know that our transgressions have been forgiven. Our sin has been permanently dealt with. The, the guilt that the, that, the, that the ancient Israelite would feel year after year as they would continue to come and make their sacrifice and be reminded every time they did of the guilt that lay upon them that could only be set aside for one more year and then back again has for us been entirely lifted. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. There is no guilt. There is no recurring sacrifice. We have a confidence, a a hope in the life beyond the grave that, that Jesus conquered death. In his resurrection, and he shares by grace through faith alone to any who will come his resurrection life. That's the anchor of our soul. Now, I want you to notice something here in this passage. Verse 23, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Do you see that? 
It doesn't just say, let us hold fast our hope, which would be a good and legitimate exhortation to the people of God. And Lord knows we need that. And in fact, a table that we're going to share here in a little while is, is, a, is a reminder of that hope. But it's interesting to me here because he doesn't say, let us hold fast the hope without wavering. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The idea here is to, is to let us hold fast the witness of our hope. Remember again the book. The book has been written to a people who are in danger of having once begun to follow Christ, of losing heart and turning and retreating back, which cannot be done. So what he is saying here, what he is exhorting them to, is a witness to their hope in Jesus Christ in the face of persecution. In light of what has been done for us, let us witness to that reality, to that hope. Let us hold fast our confession. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, be always ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. To speak. When opportunity presents itself of the hope that we have in a hopeless world. Finally, it is an invitation to work. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you considered how to specifically help someone live the Christian life? When was the last time he gave it serious attention? The word consider, let us consider how to stimulate. That's, a, that's an intensive kind of word. It's a word that speaks of, of serious mental effort and contemplation. It, it's not just a passing thought. I had a thought one time. You know, I had a thought one time. It would be really cool if I were to get together with somebody and just read the Bible with them. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about effort. Serious effort, intense effort. It's an exhortation to work. But, but what kind of work? And here's where it gets really interesting. In verse 24 again, let us consider, let us work hard at how to stimulate one another. Now this word, translated here in the English, stimulate, this Greek word, Whenever else it's used in the New Testament, it's always used in a negative sense, except here. And the word could be translated irritate. It could be translated exasperate. It could be translated stir up or provoke. So isn't that an interesting exhortation? Let us work very hard. Let us really give serious consideration as to how to irritate one another. <laughs> We're thinking, hey, that comes easy. <laughs> I don't have to work hard at that. Or to exasperate 
one another. Or to Actually, those are probably not the best ways to render it. I think stir up, actually, is a good way to render the word. Or provoke is a good way to render the word. Let us seriously consider, let us work hard, let us exert mental energy at how we might stir up one another, at how we might provoke one another. Like a pebble in the shoe. You ever had a pebble in your shoe? Yeah, if you had one, you know about it, right? It, it provokes you. It stirs you up. Let us provoke and stir up one another, verse 24, what? To love and good deeds. To love and good deeds. Agape love. A love that is, that is not a love that receives, but a love that gives. Let us provoke one another to a, to a giving sort of love, to a, to a life of good deeds. Let us work at it. And where does, this, where does this activity occur? Look at verse 25. It occurs in the gathering of the people of God. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, listen to me. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. It is a, it is a contradiction. It is an oxymoron. It is impossible. The spiritual reality of conversion is that we have been placed into the body of Christ Jesus being the baptizer, the spirit being the medium of baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, where we're placed into the body of Christ. And that universal body of Christ has a local representation. And the local representation is the local church. And thus, when you read the New Testament, far and away, the, the majority of the references to the church are not to this universal church that cannot be seen, and it is known only in the mind of God, but it is to the local church, which is the visible representation on earth of this incredible spiritual reality. So we are to work hard at provoking one another in this local fellowship to eleven good deeds. Beloved, I think I can be so bold as to say that, that my spiritual health and your spiritual health is dependent upon your involvement in a local assembly. Without it, you will be sick at best. And should it be the pattern of your life that you have no interest in or use for it, then one could legitimately question whether you really know Christ at all. We are to be involved with each other. And notice that he goes on to say, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day. The day spoken of here is the, is the day of the Lord. It is the end of the age. It is the coming of the age to come that is preceded by the incredible and terrible judgments in the early part of the day of the Lord. 
So he's saying this thing is essential, this thing is critical, and it's even more so when you consider the reality that you and I live on the edge of eternity. The edge of eternity. Many of you have these. They were handed out this morning at the breakfast. They're out in the connection corner if you don't have one. These are a—it's just a brochure. It's a nice brochure. I appreciate all the work the office did to put it together. Listing small groups. Has the pictures and the times and the study materials and the place and the contact information for small groups that meet five out of seven nights of the week. All over the Inland Valley. North, south, east, west. Beloved, this is, a, this is a practical outworking of what this passage is about. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Amen? Super easy when you're by yourself, don't you think? But it's false. Those Christian virtues are lived out in community together where we're irritating and provoking and stimulating and stirring up one another to a self-sacrificing love and good deeds. This is a venue. It's not the only venue, but, but listen, this is a very good venue. This is a very good venue. You need to be part of one. No hiding up there. You need to be part of one. Because we need to be together. It's, this is great. You going anywhere for lunch? Uh, we're having dinner. It's the Lord's Supper. I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll finish this. Where was I? Give me a word. This is, yeah, there we go. This time here is, is huge and it's significant and it should not be missed. Because this is the time when we gather together to sing to one another. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? This is when we hear the word preached together and, and, and we are, as a community of believers, aligned together under the, under the word of God as, a minister, as the spirit of God ministers the word of God to our hearts through the preaching of the word. It's a critical time. But it's an input time. To a large extent. We need an output time. These are output times. Okay? You need to do it. You need to do it. Gentlemen, if you want to make your way to the back, please. Jesus has given us this memorial meal. He has, he has provided to us, and, and basically all he has done is, is transformed what were common, simple elements of a meal in the first century that would always be there, bread in the cup. I think he transformed them 
for many reasons, to be sure, but, but, but one of which is because it's, it's, it's like something you do when you get together to eat. You, you break bread together. You share a cup. That was a Passover, and, you know, I get all of that. But listen, it's, it's, it's come down to us. It's moved forward to us in that it's no longer the Passover. And it was just a piece of the Passover meal. It's come to us now as this incredible, beautiful memorial meal and supper by which we come together and celebrate as we reenact together the death, burial, resurrection of Christ and remind each other of what he has done in us and for us and to us as he has made us one body in Christ. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? Be careful how you come to the table. Don't take this in an unworthy manner. And it's not that, that uh, you know, he provides the meal so that we can confess our sin. That's not the point. There in 1 Corinthians 11, the, the criticism of the church is, is that they're taking this meal without any consideration of the reality of their oneness in Christ. And in fact, by their behaviors, they're acting like they're all individuals. And there's disunity in the body. And that's impossible. There can't be. Yeah, there can be in the visible church, but only to the extent that the visible church is in sin. But there cannot be disunity in the body. Listen, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, that they may be one as we are one, Father. You and me and I in, in you and them in us. Listen, that prayer is answered. In the cross of Christ, in the coming of the Spirit. We are one. We just forget it. And we do a bad job of evidencing it. So we come to the table here to take, to remind ourselves of that truth. And to the extent there is barriers, horizontal, you know, barriers to relationships, they need to be resolved. That's what it means to, to take it in an unworthy fashion is to, is to take it while there lingers in your heart animosity or, or barriers between you and your brothers or sisters in Christ. Jesus said, listen, leave your offering at the, at the temple, right? And go and get re- resolved these things. So that we can take this and proclaim through it the reality of our oneness in Christ. Okay? That's why we take Let's pray. Our Father, we have this meal. Jesus has given it to us. He's said that we're to do this, and as often as we're to do it, we're to do it in remembrance of him. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, our Father, we're we're going to momentarily eat and drink together. And we're going to enact in a physical way. We're going to, we're going to act out. And it's a piece of, in one sense, a piece of drama. Incredible truth that is represented here. So we pray for your spirit to search our hearts even right now. See if there be any 
hidden wickedness. Any way that we have devalued the body. Any way that we have sinned against the unity that is ours in Christ through the indwelling Spirit. And let us forsake those ways. And let us take and eat together with a clean heart. We thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. That they represent Christ. Who lived and died and rose again and lives forevermore. And freely shares that life with us. Thank you in his name. Amen. Scripture tells us that after they took that night and they left the upper room that they sang a hymn together on their way to the Mount of Olives. So we're going to sing as well. We're going to sing that song that was just being played, The Power of the Cross. But before we do that, we need to partake in that which has been given us by Christ to show forth our unity in him. Let's eat and drink.